past week I came across an article I thought was fitting as the title, Did God Write the Story You Didn't Want? This is how she begins the article. Have you ever looked around at your life and assumed that nothing is ever going to get better? That the hard things will just get harder and the good things might disappear? That there's no point in hoping anymore because it will only lead to disappointment? And she says, I have. And then she goes on to share the various struggles that her family has endured over the years, that her husband left her, her health was really poor, her two daughters were walking away from their faith. Things looked really bleak. She questioned where was God in all of it. Then there's a turning point in her life, and she quotes from Paul Miller's book. I'm sure many of you have heard it or read about it, called A Praying Life. This is what Paul Miller says. He says, When confronted with suffering that won't go away, where it's even a minor problem, we instinctively focus on what is missing and not on the master's hand. Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you are in the middle of a story. Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you are in the middle of the story. And I couldn't help but think that Elijah probably felt a bit like that. He's in the middle of the story. He's living through it. And things don't look that promising in Israel. He feels like he has failed in his life, right? And maybe he even thinks that God's promises have failed. And I suspect some of us here this morning probably feel the exact same way. Going through certain struggles, different difficulties, And you're asking, where is God in all of this? Is he keeping his word? Are his promises true? Will he continue to be merciful to me when it doesn't look like he's being very merciful to me? So with that in mind, I want to ask three primary questions of this text. Three questions. And the first is, what is Elijah doing here? Now, if you notice when I was reading it, God asked him that very question two times. And both times God, and both times Elijah answers the question the exact same way. I think that's really telling of how Elijah views the situation. And the second question I want to ask is, what is God doing here? And I think we'll see that he is revealing something significant about who he is and how he works in the world and how he can be trusted And the last question I want us to ask is, what are we doing here? That I really want to help us this morning, 21st century, Greenville, South Carolina, downtown Presbyterian Church, I want to help us see and feel the wonder of God's grace toward us. We don't deserve it. Because there's judgment in this passage, but in judgment there is mercy. That's what I want us to see, and that's where we're headed. So what's Elijah doing here? We're going to look at what he says in just a minute, but at the very least, we can say that he is there to meet with God. Whether or not he fully realizes that God has brought him to that very place. And the reason I say that is because this isn't the first time something like this has happened. 
One of the striking things about our passage this morning is how it parallels the life of Moses and the people of Israel. Again, I think the writer wants us to pick up on that. He's doing that intentionally. He's drawing us into the story. He's setting us up. And I want to try to help us see it by focusing on Horeb for a minute in verse 8, which is just another name for Sinai that we see throughout the Bible. I want us to notice some of these connections here. So consider this a bit of a highlight reel for Israel and their story with God. If you remember back at the beginning of Exodus, this is pre-plagues, pre-giving of the law. Moses was also a man on the run. Do you remember the story? He kills an Egyptian man. Pharaoh is after him and Moses hightails it out of Egypt, goes through the wilderness to Midian and he gets married there. And then we read these words in Exodus chapter 3, 1 and 2. Completely out of the blue. God's going to surprise him. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he, fled his, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Same place as our text here. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. So it's here that Moses first encounters the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. And it's here where Moses, in just a little bit, will hide his face, for he was afraid to look at the face of God. And it's here, that incident, that God promises that he will deliver his people out of their bondage to slavery he will make that promise come true. And it's here that God first reveals himself as Yahweh. I am who I am. And when you fast forward several chapters in Exodus, the people of Israel are gathered at the foot of this very mountain after God delivered them with signs and wonders. He makes a covenant with them that, he would, that they would be his treasured possession. He gives them his law And they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And it was here that God descended on the mountain and all the people were afraid and trembled at the presence of God on the mountain. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And maybe most significant of all, at least it is for our passage, it was here that the people rebelled against the Lord And they rebelled after God had delivered them with signs and wonders. They bow their knee to the golden calf. And it's here that Moses intercedes for the people and he pleads with God to keep his covenant. And where Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And where God says these words back to him. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God reveals something significant about who he is in those words. So it's here that the covenant is renewed and here where God would show his grace and mercy to an undeserving people. Now we could literally keep going with all of this, but I just wanted us to see that this is a sacred space in Israel's story. That this is where it all started. 
This is where God created a people for himself. And as we will see in a minute, it is where God is going to keep a people for himself, that he is going to be merciful and gracious. So there's a lot of similarities with what's going on back in Moses' day with what's going on in Elijah. So when we read in verse 8 that Elijah came to Horeb, the mountain of God, the writer wants us to bring all of that history to bear on this passage as set up for the story that's about to unfold here. He's priming the pump for another encounter with God. That's what I want us to see. So Elijah, again, he's here, he's frustrated, he's fearful. He doesn't know what God is up to. The nation's in rebellion and nothing seems to get their attention or change their hearts. Signs have had little effect on them. And it's in this context, Elijah's brokenness, his fear, that God asks him twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? And both times he responds the same way. Look with me at either verse 10 or 14, the exact same. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Then he gives the reason why he has such zeal for God. He says, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Now what Elijah is saying here is that he shares the same passion for God that God has for God. He wants God to be known. That like God, he wants nothing more than for there to be more worshipers. For there to be more people who know him, who love him, who walk in his ways. His desire is that God will be more desired than Baal or any other God, or any other sin. That's what Elijah means here when he says that he is jealous. He is zealous for the Lord, and he feels like he is the only one left in Israel who feels that way. But God's going to show him in just a minute that that is not the case, and it's not the case because God is going to keep a people for himself. That in judgment, though judgment is coming, God will be merciful Now, here's what we could do right now. We could spend some time and pick apart Elijah's answer here and ask whether or not he is seeing things correctly or whether he's exaggerating a bit. But that's not really the point, is it? This is how he sees things, how he feels about the situation. God's going to help him see more clearly. But on the whole, I think Elijah is right. And I think the text points us in that direction. And the reason is because we've seen this play out over the past week, right? Past weeks. For the most part, Israel is in rebellion against God. And many of the prophets have been killed and the rest are in hiding because they are afraid that the same fate awaits them. So the situation does seem bleak, but here's what we need to remember in all of this. There's something here for us. Is that Elijah just like us, has limited perspective and power. He is in the story just as we are, and he can't see the end from the beginning or from the middle. He can't see all the ways in which God is working, the God who is writing the story. He can't change human hearts. Don't we wish we could do that? 
Elijah can't change human hearts. He can't cause blind eyes to see. He can't make people love God. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. So that's why Elijah is here. Now I want to shift our focus and ask what God is doing here. And there are two primary things I want us to see. The first thing is that God's revealing his glory to Elijah. He's going to show him what he's like. He did the same thing with Moses. If you remember back to Exodus 33 and 34, Israel was in rebellion. Moses says to God, show me your glory. God hides him in the cleft of the rock. And it says the Lord passed by Moses. You could see his backside. It's the same language in verse 11 of our text. The Lord passed by Elijah. And the second thing I want us to see here is God's grace. That judgment is coming to Israel for their sin, but in judgment he will show mercy. And here's the thing. What we learn in this, in this passage this, is this massive truth, and we see it throughout all the Bible. It's that God is not only sovereign over nature, caused the rain to stop for three and a half years. He's not only sovereign over life and death, raised people back from the dead. He's not only sovereign over so-called gods like Baal. We've seen all of that in this series, but he's also sovereign over history. He's sovereign over politics and kings. And even more than that, he is sovereign over the salvation of his people and will, without fail, keep them faithful. Now, brothers and sisters, it is all because of sovereign mercy that you and I are saved this morning from the judgment we deserve because of our sins. So God is going to show Elijah and show us both his glory and his grace here. So picture the scene with me. God asks Elijah what he's doing. Elijah answers, then verse 11 says, the Lord said, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. Now try to put yourself in Elijah's seat and look through his eyes as he sees God Almighty approaching. He's heard about God. He's seen God work, but now he's about to catch a glimpse of God himself. So just imagine this volcano erupting, this tornado, this hurricane happening all at once. And the Bible actually says here that this is all happening before God even gets there. There's an earthquake, there's a fire. Now what's, what's the point that the author is trying to make in all of this? At the very least, he wants us to see and to feel the glory and the majesty and the weightiness of God. And he's using whatever language he can to get our attention, to get Elijah's attention. As I was getting ready to preach, I stopped at this point and I asked myself a question. I'll ask it to you this morning. Is that do we have a sense, even a remote sense, of the sheer majesty and glory and power of God that has shown us here? That he is not like us and there is none like him. That a God like this, glorious as he is, is worthy of our worship. 
deserving of our obedience? Do we ever feel amazed? Do we ever marvel, even tremble, that he would draw near to meet with us? And that we are not consumed when he does? Or is our view of God one that's puny and pathetic and powerless? Because here's the thing. God means to inspire worship in us, not make us feel sorry for him. Because a low view of God will always lead to little love for God. Israel had a low view of him. They couldn't see him for who he was in all his glory. And that's why Baal had their hearts. Sin will always look more pleasurable to us when our God looks pathetic, puny, and powerless. But that is not the God that we encounter in the Bible. And that's not the God that we encounter here. And Elijah has a front row seat watching it. It says God wasn't in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. And then at the end of verse 12, we read these words. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. So again, just just imagine the noise, the commotion, everything that Elijah is seeing here. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, there's complete silence, stillness. You can almost feel the goosebumps forming on Elijah's arms. The idea here is of a pregnant silence, that something big is about to happen. And then there's the sound of a faint whisper. And in an instant, Elijah knows that he is standing in the very presence of God Almighty. Because it says in verse 13, he wrapped his face in his cloak, which is what everybody does when they're in the presence of glory because no one can look at the face of God and live. God is there meeting with Elijah. So we catch a glimpse just a glimmer of his glory here. And one of the lessons for Elijah and for us is that God reveals his glory not only in spectacular signs, but he also reveals his glory in his spoken word, the faint whisper of his presence, that he is the kind of God who comes so near to us that we can hear the sound of his whisper. And he's a God who speaks. He's a God who has spoken. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we get a window into how he works in the world to fulfill that word. Because it doesn't always look like he's working. It doesn't always look like he's fulfilling his promises or keeping his word. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably feel that way sometimes. But there are times where God's ways are more subtle, where he's working behind the scenes where there's but a whisper of his presence. And we see that here as God begins to pull back the curtain on his sovereignty over the nations, over kings, over politics. And even more than that, we can see his sovereignty over the salvation of sinners, that if any are to be spared the coming judgment that is coming, it'll be because of him. Not because of us, but because of him. So we see both his glory and his grace here, his majesty and his mercy. And it's both and. So you see that God's sending Elijah back to where he ran from, but not to do another sign. But he's sending him back to put in place his providential plan because he's going to fulfill his purposes. 
his word through politics and people. Look with me at verses 15 and 17. It says, The Lord said to him, Go, Elijah, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Friends, what I want us to see here is that these are sobering words because judgment is coming to Israel for their sin. And God is right and he is just to do it. The sword that Elijah referred to in verses 10 and 14 that killed the prophets is going to fall on those who participated in that. And if you were to continue reading through First and Second Kings, what you'll find is that there's no clear indication that Elijah actually does the first two things here. It's actually Elisha, his successor, who does it. But we read these words in 2 Kings 9 through 10 when Jehu executes Jezebel and all of Ahab's descendants and all the prophets of Baal. That we learn that God is faithful to his word. That judgment was coming to Israel. And then in 2 Kings 8, we read these really haunting words. This is Elisha with Hazel, who's about to be king over Syria. Again, by God's appointment, it says, hear this. And Elisha fixed his gaze and he stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazel said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Again, this is God's doing. You know, when we read things like that in the Bible, we do well to remember the seriousness of sin. I'm not just talking about other people's sin, but I'm talking about our own sin. That all of us rightfully deserve judgment. That like Israel, we too have rebelled against God and have worshipped other things. That we too have gone our own way and rejected God. But in remembering how serious sin is, it should cause us to marvel at the mercy that God has shown us because it is an act of his grace that any of us are saved. And we see that exact thing in verse 18 of this passage, that in judgment, God will show mercy to those who belong to him. He says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. This is God's doing. God's the primary actor here. The sword will not fall on them because God will spare them. And if you fast forward to the New Testament and you come to Romans chapter 11, Paul is speaking about the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And he asks the question, has God rejected his people? And he's asking that question because Jesus, the Messiah, the one that Israel had been longing for for centuries had come. And they didn't turn to him, but they rejected him. 
So therefore, does that mean God has rejected them, that he's broken his covenant with them? Listen to Paul's answer. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Then he quotes from our passage in 1 Kings 19 to illustrate and strengthen that point. He says there, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then Paul says this in verse five. He says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. Paul's talking about Israel here. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about you and me, but we could take the rest of the day and look at the New Testament where God says statements like what we just saw about us. That we too have been chosen by grace. We too are being kept for himself. We too are those whom he foreknew that it is true of everyone who will be saved from God's wrath that is coming upon the world. So that leads us to our last question. What are we doing here? And I mean that literally. Like what are you and I doing in this building this morning and sitting in these seats and singing these songs and listening to this sermon? In other words, how is it that any of us have an interest in God and in the gospel when so many in the world do not? And we could easily begin to think that it's something special about us that we have better eyes to see ears to hear? Or how is it that for some of us, though our life is difficult and we are suffering and we feel fragile and frustrated that we have not lost total faith in God this morning? And to get to that answer, I want to start with Jesus, which is always a really good idea. Just make a few connections with our passage. I want you to see some of the parallels here. You know, in the gospel of John, chapter one, verse 14, John writes this. He says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and then john tells us that not everybody believed that word not everybody saw that glory or tasted that grace jesus came to his own john says and his own people did not receive him does that sound at all familiar what we've looked at with elijah So Jesus, God incarnate, arrives on the scene and he doesn't look that impressive. He's from a small town, born into a poor family, has an appearance that would not attract us to him, wouldn't make the cover of People magazine. But he comes proclaiming God's very word. He's actually the very embodiment of it. And he wows the crowds with signs and yet though they hear and though they see all of that most people don't believe and turn to him instead they turn against him and from most people's perspective jesus's ministry looked like an utter and complete failure he doesn't turn israel's hearts back to god rather he's rejected by the people He's abandoned by his friends and he alone is left. He is threatened with his life, but he doesn't run away from that threat. He faces it. And he climbs a mountain, but he's not met there with God's presence, but only his absence. 
in his silence. He's killed by the government. He's sealed in a tomb. And it looked like the story ended there. Everybody thought the story ended there. That God's word had failed, that he had failed to save his people and to keep his promises. But we know that's not the end of the story. And we know that's not the end of the story because you and I are sitting here this morning. God raised him from the dead to show once and for all both his glory and his grace in the saving of sinners like us. Friends, Jesus came into the world, the very word, the very glory of God, so that the sword of God's judgment on sin that should have fallen on us fell on him so that you and I would be spared. Don't lose the wonder of that. Because we too have rebelled. We too have loved other things more than God. None of us deserve his mercy, only his judgment. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, that God was rich in mercy. And why was he rich in mercy? He was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It's not because we deserved it. It's because we are loved. You know, I asked just a few minutes ago, do we marvel at his majesty? And now I think it's appropriate to ask, do we marvel at his mercy? Do you marvel at his mercy? Do we stand in wonder at both his glory and his grace? You know, there's not a lot of do in this passage. Go do something. But there is a whole lot of look and see all that God has done for you. That if you're a Christian this morning, it's not because of your own doing, it's because you are a miracle of sovereign mercy. That it is God who has saved you and it is God who will without fail keep you from falling away from him. But if you're not a Christian this morning, the invitation is for you to turn to him. Ask him to open your eyes to see his glory and his grace. Because the thing is, God will not I want you to hear this. God will not and cannot turn a blind eye to sin. Sin must be judged either on the cross or in hell, but the good news is that Jesus endured God's judgment on the cross so that you could be spared it. You become a Christian not by doing something, but by receiving and resting in what he has done for you. It's all because of mercy and grace that any of us are saved. Let me close like this. You know, Elijah, he couldn't see the full picture of all the ways that God was working in his day or in his life. Jesus' disciples couldn't see the full picture either. And you and I sitting here this morning can't see the full picture of all the ways that God is working in the world and in our lives. But like Elijah and the disciples and those in Paul's day, he has revealed himself to us in his word. And it's there we behold his glory. And it's there we experience his grace. And it's there we see his faithfulness proven time and again. That he can be trusted. Because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a guarantee for those who belong to him. Let me end with the article I referenced at the beginning. As we think about our lives especially in times when it appears like they're unraveling. And we think about God and what he is doing. Listen to what 
she says as she looks back at a difficult time in her life. She says, those desperate years when God was silent, he was not absent. He had been there all along. We are all works in progress and we are all in the middle of our stories. We don't know how things will turn out. While none of us know the joys and trials we have yet to encounter, we do know that Jesus will be with us through them all and we can be confident that one day, After the last chapter is written, our story will be tied up with a bow in the most glorious way possible. And we can all say that because God's word has promised it will be so. That the grace that has saved us is the same grace that will keep us and bring us home to glory forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we confess that it is a difficult text because there is judgment that's coming on sin. That God, because of your holiness, because of your justice, you cannot turn a blind eye to it. But it must be judged either on the cross or in hell. God, I know there are some in this room who have yet to taste of your mercy, who have yet to see your majesty. God, I pray for a miracle that you would open blind eyes this morning. You would soften hard hearts. They would feel your worth, see your beauty. We ask this all in Christ's name, amen.